much to get to in today's show but let me start with the usual reminder follow Jamel Hill is unbothered on Spotify and also on other social media platforms I'm on TikTok Instagram Facebook and also if you want to see extended video clips of some of the interviews that you hear here on this platform you can go to my YouTube page so make sure you check that out speaking of Guess who else has a YouTube page? The Unbothered Network. The Black Girl Bravado and Sanctified have been dropping some fire ass content. So I'm going to need y'all to subscribe on YouTube and also follow the Unbothered Network on Instagram as well. Follow, support. Y'all know how it goes down. Now for the topic at hand, or should I say the word at hand? The word of the week is liberation. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh. Yeah. Recently, actor Jonathan Majors, who has a starring role in the new Ant-Man and Wasp movie, and also he's starring alongside Michael B. Jordan in Creed 3, got two blockbuster movies that are coming out back to back. For that reason, and many others just to celebrate his work, he is now on the cover of Ebony, or rather he's on the February issue of Ebony. Now, Ebony essentially isn't a printed magazine anymore, so they release digital covers. And when they released the digital cover of Majors, it went viral. He was lazily sitting in a chair, bare-chested, in some boxing trunks with a red robe draped loosely over his shoulders. One hand is holding a gorgeous collection of red roses, and there are rose petals at his feet. Objectively speaking, respectfully, Jonathan Majors looks sexy. but. With it being February, the month we celebrate Valentine's Day, I imagine that was kind of the point. This was the vision. The cover went viral for all the right reasons. And then a week later, after that initial digital cover drop, Ebony put out another photo that was a part of the collection of photos in this digital cover. This time, Jonathan Majors, sitting on the back of a vintage love seat, legs crossed, dressed in some denim pants that had some fringes on it and almost looked like the type of pants that also had the boots attached. And he's bare chested again, wearing a skull cap that is kind of reminiscent of the red skull cap that Marvin Gaye wore and made famous. And he's got this fluffy pink coat that has this boa featherish material that's draped over his shoulders. And his mouth is slightly pouty. And man... This photo sent black folks into a complete meltdown. Suddenly, this wasn't just a cover celebrating a black actor creeping into the A-list club. It became an indictment on black masculinity. Streets were saying the cover was just another example of they, they as in the man, white folks, the industry, Hollywood, trying to feminize and emasculate black men even though the creative director for this shoot is a black man named Alexander Julian Gibson. And he explained that that particular photo, the inspiration came from an anime character named Doflamingo, whose signature look is indeed a big fluffy pink coat, skinny pants, 
and he always has his chest out. Now, I was watching a Netflix documentary on Toni Morrison, and she said something so real that applies to this very conversation. She was speaking about how early in her career, white book critics would criticize her and complain that her writing was one dimensional. And they would ask her why she didn't include white characters in her work. And she explained how she didn't really care about their world. She cared about ours. And she preferred to imagine and develop these worlds without white people in it. She talked about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, a classic novel. And Tony said, Invisible Man, invisible to whom? Black people are upset about this photo with Jonathan Majors because too many of us are too caught up in what white people think and how white people examine us. When white folks have shown us time and again, they don't even consider us. Now, white supremacy as a structure is obsessed with subjugating us. And part of that subjugation means denying us liberation in all forms. And one of those forms is the form of expression. Harry Styles out here on Vogue, Rolling Stone, and at the Grammys and Tube Tops and Feather Boys living his best white life. And we over here about to come apart at the scenes as a race over a black man's personal expression of how he sees himself. White people aren't huddled in groups having conversation about white masculinity because of Harry Styles. Now, sure, it's some white conservatives who have condemned Harry Styles. The same ones who think America was so much better when black people couldn't be educated, couldn't vote, when women couldn't vote. And the white male patriarchy was the automatic default setting for everything. Are those the people you really want to align your thoughts and ideas with? Because the day that I'm reiterating the same talking points as Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk, that's the day y'all have my permission to come up to me and cuss me smooth out. See, I'm old enough to remember a guy named Prince who broke all the rules when it came to fashion and truly became an iconic expression of boldness. Listen, if Prince were alive and Ebony approached him about doing the cover during February for Valentine's Day, Prince would have been right there with that same fluffy pink coat on and he would have put on some pants with the ass out, his customary high heel boots, baby hairs laid, fresh ass perm and would have been stunting on all you hoes. Now, I'm old enough to remember Rick James and thigh high boots. Jimi Hendrix wearing scarves around his neck and tight pants. James Brown wearing onesie cat suits with the chest out. Michael Jackson in tight ass leather pants. Part of the reason they became icons is because they were unconventional and they were comfortable in their own skin and they didn't give a fuck about what everybody thought. I have often found that whenever we try to define something as massive and as nuanced as masculinity or femininity or blackness, we almost always end up in the stupidest conversations. That's why we have a contingent of ashes out here accusing ASAP Rocky of being soft and less than a man because he's on the cover of Vogue with Rihanna holding his child and walking slightly behind her. Never mind that this is Rihanna's cover and best believe Vogue wouldn't be putting him on the cover without her. But more importantly, it's showing black fatherhood and support. And some of us have twisted that image into a whole media conspiracy to show black men aren't the dominant force in their own households. We really out here on Beyonce Giselle Carter's Internet 
saying a black man that has impregnated a black female billionaire twice is a simp. That is a tough scene. Meanwhile, we have young black boys and men being killed in these streets daily trying to cosplay what they think real masculinity is shooting and killing one another over perceived slights and disrespect. I'm not here to define masculinity, but here's what I do want for black men. The freedom to dress in Timberlands or brunch boots, the freedom to wear skinny jeans or three button Steve Harvey specials, the freedom to wear locks, a ball fade or lace front. That's what real liberation is. Knowing you can be exactly who the fuck you feel like being. The word of the week. Liberation. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today has one of the most important jobs in America as a member of this current Congress. Her political origins run pretty deep. She was the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council in its 100-year history. She then became the first woman of color to be elected to Congress from the great state of Massachusetts. And while I couldn't quite verify this, I suspect she is also the first woman in Congress to wear a bald head. And there's a very personal story behind that decision, which we'll get to in a moment. But coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Representative Ayanna Presley. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Congresswoman, I often am in awe of the people that uh, I get to interview on this podcast. And because of the way that I often start this podcast, I can't say I've been more excited to hear someone's answer to this question than you. And this is a question that I ask every single guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Okay, so first, we're not going to pretend like I don't listen to your show. <laughs> okay, so you already know it's coming. Every time you ask the question, I'm like, now, how are they going to get at this? Okay, so, you know, um, there's so many ways I could get at this because some people go sort of like origin story, you know, or a, a pivotal period. I would say a lot of that for me was in this congressional run in 2018. Because as someone who has been doing the work of movement building and organizing and electoral politics really since the age of 10, I worked on my first campaign at the age of 10 to help elect the first black mayor in the city of Chicago, Harold Washington. That's where I'm from, is Chicago, and had been an aide for 16 years uh, for uh, to a member of Congress. I actually started in his office as an unpaid intern working three paid jobs. And uh, 25 plus years later, I'm the congresswoman for that very office. And then I was also an aide to a senator for 11 years. And then I served on the city council for eight. Jamel, imagine what it felt like uh, when, according to political currency and what people value to determine your readiness 
and your qualifications to run for office, that people would think it audacious that I would run. In my eight-year tenure on the Boston City Council as the first woman of color, first Black woman to serve on that body, and that took 100 years, I had been the top vote-getter in three consecutive elections. So I had decisively earned the trust and the confidence and the partnership of the city of Boston. And here I was running for a congressional seat that was nearly 30% single female-headed households, more than 50% immigrant, just a district that is uh, diverse in, in many ways. And people thought it audacious that I would run. And so people that had been my friends who I had stood been in the trenches with would not shake my hand, would not uh, want to be photographed with me. And I knew that running to unseat an incumbent um, would be a very lonely road. I had been in this, again, for a long time, uh, doing the work of electoral politics and movement building. That was initially very painful because, again, the reasons that people usually use to disqualify people, they could not weaponize against me. You couldn't say I hadn't paid my dues. You couldn't say I'd never been elected to office before. And so I became unbothered because it liberated me. You know, I had a moment where I had, I felt a little bit of betrayal and I'll just say even a little duped, thinking about all the sacrifices that I had made, the people that I had supported, the movements that I had helped to build. But it was liberating because now I could in every way be unbought, unbossed, uh, fully, authentically, unapologetically Black in myself. I've always wanted to usher in a politic of transformation and not transaction. And so when there were those who gave me a cold shoulder in that process that I had known and worked with for so many years, it made it that much easier to do the work of transformative movement building and not the work of transactional politics, if that makes sense. It does. It does. If those moments had not happened, I would not be able to be here in the corridors of Congress after having decisively beat the incumbent by 18 points as a proud, bald black woman at policy and decision making tables and in the corridors of power. If I had not had that defining uh, moment uh, that that left me unbothered. Was politics you running for office in particular? Was that always the plan? No. (laughs) Okay. Now, some people will say, Ayana, that's not true because in high school, well, I was class president from seventh grade all the way to 12th grade, and I was a competitive debater and uh, a Midwest champion. Damn. (laughs) Seventh through 12th? (laughs) Listen, I I don't think that's because there was anything extraordinary about me. I think I was just the only one that kept raising my hand and I was probably the loudest, maybe occasionally a little eloquent too. But yes, so, you know, I was student government president. I was class president, you know, co-captain of my cheerleading squad. You know, I had those sort of conventional resume things, I guess, that one would anticipate if someone aspired to run for office. And in fact, In high school, I was voted most likely to be the mayor of Chicago. And in my youthful arrogance, I was upset because that did not seem a high enough bar. (laughs) 
But that being said, I loved being an aide. I loved being behind the person. And I think it's so important that people not define civic engagement uh, and the work of politics just by casting a ballot or having your name on a ballot. There are so many rewarding, meaningful, impactful roles to be the person behind the person. I pay attention to how people treat my staff, who I see as not working for me, but working with me. Um, But people often treat them as invisible and they don't understand the power of an aide. They're the ones pulling the elbow of a member. They're the ones whispering in their ear, uh, heading into an interview or a vote. Um, They're the ones amplifying an issue that they heard in a constituent meeting. I mean, I I do make it a point to be proximate uh, to the pain because I believe the people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power, driving and informing the policymaking. Um, But I could not do anything uh, were it not for this brilliant, dedicated, personally sacrificing staff, you know, that I have. And I know that because I did that work, too. And I found such reward and meaning and purpose at being the person behind the person and was very content with that. And what happened is that I had been doing the work of trying to actualize leadership parity in the city of Boston, a city that many would define as very progressive in a state they would define as very progressive, a blue state, leaders in healthcare reform, marriage equality, but very behind uh, when it comes to leadership parity and representation at that time uh, when I was first recruited to run. So I had been doing the work of pipeline building and recruitment so that we could have a government at every level that was reflective and representative of the people, not for kumbaya, not for benevolence, not to say how progressive we are, but because you can't advance policies through a monolithic and homogenized prison. Policy is my love language. So I always knew that in order for us to have policies that did the work of healing, of justice, of equity, we needed to have policymakers that were reflective and representative. And so while I was doing that work in the nonprofit world and other ways, while an aide for a United States senator, someone came to me and said, you need to run for the Boston City Council. There's never been a woman of color elected to this body. Uh, This is going to be the year. Here's all the data that shows the trends. And I said, you know, hell no. I'm very happy being the person behind the person. I have no designs on doing that. Finally, I decided that it was extension of a lifetime of work. And I ran, I can't even say it's a platform because it's really my heart's work. So it feels wrong to call it this, but I ran on a platform of saving our girls. Um, And I said, girls that didn't even know they needed saving. I felt there had been such a disproportionate emphasis on how at improving risk black and brown boys are. And that here, black and brown girls were growing up in the same conditions and our stories weren't being told. And I wanted to champion gender specific and responsive programming and policies because I was giving my phone number to every young girl that I was mentoring uh, as a big sister or doing the work of advancing the safety development and wellness of girls. And it wasn't sustainable. And I said, you know, the fact that this isn't sustainable demonstrates this is something systemic going on. And I'm going to tell you this, Jamil, when I first came out with that platform, I'm running to save our girls. Many people said that's the work of the nonprofit community, not government. And there were many a gatekeeper, including in my home community, black folks who said, but it's the boys that are dying. And I said, well, this is not the oppression Olympics. The boys are dying. That is true. And the girls are slowly dying in front of you. And no one is creating space for their voices. I don't want to be their voice. I want to create space for their voices to be heard. You know, fortunately, an entire city believed that that was a worthy agenda. 
And so I, I did in 2009 uh, become the first uh, woman of color, first black woman to serve on that Boston City Council, breaking that concrete ceiling, because that's what we say black women do. We don't break glass ceilings, breaking that concrete ceiling. And I'm very proud to say that today in 2023, that city council is now majority people of color and majority women of color. And three of them have gone on to now be our mayor, our attorney general and a state senator. So when the teacher left the class, you were definitely the student that got put in charge of the class when she left. (laughs) That is true. I knew it. I knew it. But why are you saying that? Because I said too much. No. I'm saying that because there's a very clear through line of leadership that you've always gone for. You know, it's by no mistake that you have been class president, that you were class president, basically your entire, you know, formal schooling. And then you were like, oh, yes, I I was captain of my cheerleading team. And this I was like, there's a a very clear through line that leadership was in your blood. And so that's I was like, oh, yeah, she was definitely the one that got left in charge when the teacher left the room (laughs) because they knew that they would be straight. It's a compliment to <laughs> Congresswoman. It truly is a compliment. Thank you. But, but I do want to say, though, like so many of us, because I, I think the dichotomy of representing any marginalized community, you know, and I can only speak to mine because I've been black and female my whole life. You know, being black and being a woman, we have this sort of dichotomy of being hyper visible where everything about us is policed and criminalized and subject to scrutiny, but also hyper invisible. And so I feel that I I was living that very early on. So I was in a school on scholarship in the minority in every way. My father uh, was battling substance use disorder in and out of the criminal legal system. I'm a survivor of a near decade of childhood sexual abuse. You know, I was being raised alone by my mom. So there were a lot of destabilizing factors in our household. You know, hardship does not discriminate. But for a while, I thought our family was kind of marked. And it's because I didn't understand that we were living in the residual aftermath of what I would characterize as policy violence. I thought that we literally just had a mark on us. And so once I made that connection, um, it, it really shifted a lot of things for me in terms of the work that I wanted to do. So I guess what I'm saying is I know I did these leadership things, these conventional things that you would expect someone to do that's now a member of Congress. But um, there are so many reasons why that should not have been my path or why things could have gone very left. I lived in the school nurse's office. I was a frequent flyer and I was there because it was a place of refuge and a safe space for me. I wasn't one of those kids that acted out. I was a kid that shut down. And so, you know, I think it's those experiences and those destabilizing factors in our household that I soon came to understand were really systemic and shared struggles by many black folks and other marginalized people because of policies, you know, like the war on drugs, like redlining, um, you know, all of these different things. And so that's when I really got very into policy and wanting to do work uh, from that aspect. And I did get the clarity very early. I do have to concede that is true, probably around 12. So I always knew that I wanted to be in the struggle and do the work of liberation. My parents placed that expectation on me. My mother did not read me bedtime stories of princes saving me. She read me the speeches of Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. And she told me to be black is a beautiful thing and something to be proud of, but you're being born into a struggle. And I have an expectation you're going to do your part in that struggle and the work of liberation for black people and all marginalized people. 
So I think I had the visibility of leadership, but there was an invisibility because I was really struggling. And a lot of my peers didn't know anything about that and couldn't relate to those things because I was in the minority in every single way in my school. There's a lot to unpack there. And I relate to everything you said because I'm the child of parents who also struggle with substance abuse. And my my father had a heroin addiction, uh, much like your father, I think, also had a heroin addiction. And there was a variety of different drugs that my mother um, certainly experimented with and was on um, as she was, unfortunately, the victim of uh, some very deep childhood trauma, sexual abuse. She was violently raped when I was about six or seven years old. So there's a lot there that you said that I very much relate to. And what I have found in just, you know, doing some research into the behaviors of children of addicts is that people would be surprised, but the number one quality and trait that psychologists say that we have is that we are control freaks. And I mean this in a positive way and that we are and often overachievers because we grew up in such a destabilizing way that what we crave is the stability and we will do everything possible to create that stability that we did not have when we were growing up. So I am not at all surprised that your path of leadership you know, I was captain of my softball team. I was probably too much of a knucklehead to run for class president, but <laughs> not totally a knucklehead. But I've always found myself drawn to leadership like positions. And I think it has a lot to do with that sort of control factor. Like when you grow up and nothing is in your control, it's the one thing that you seek that once you become an adult. And yes, you can pay me a couple bucks for that armchair psychology. <laughs> no, that was better than a yonlug. Do you want to hit me with an invoice? I, you know, I, I don't. <laughs> but I would say, first of all, I want to hold space for that. You know, just because we tell our stories all the time doesn't mean that um, it isn't hard. You know, so I thank you for sharing that. I want to hold space for that. Um, and also say that I think is one of the reasons why you're such an effective storyteller. You're, you're a true empath. You know, I just thank you for stewarding your gift in such a righteous way. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Right now, when we're recording this podcast, we're just a few days removed from the State of the Union address, which was theater <laughs> would be the word that came to mind. A lot of your Republican colleagues behaved very childishly, I, I think, you know, with the yelling and all that. And it was really kind of disheartening to see. And they're holding these hearings about Twitter. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like what this it just all seems like a big waste of time. Not the State of the Union. We need to hear from the president. We need to hear what the agenda is, the progress, where we still have to go. So that part isn't. But this other stuff, the American people are watching as we see what happened with the Speaker of the House and the election of that. We're watching all of these things. So right now, what would you say to the American people who are seeing, and it's coming from one direction, so let me acknowledge that, this clown show that's taking place in our political realm? Well, I think the actions of many of our colleagues across the aisle of the night of the State of the Union is really more of the same. We came into the 118th Congress um, with complete chaos, you know, a proven ineptness, unreadiness to govern. People could joke about the fact that it took uh, 14 ballots to elect a speaker, um, but I just felt sad because uh, for every hour that there was a delay in that, we were not governing. And that was a disservice to the people who have entrusted us with this great honor. 
Uh, theater is the right word because I think that's something that the GOP uh, has become quite skilled at. It's just a lot of political stunts and gamesmanship. And I think they govern with a callousness and really a contempt for the people of this country. The fact that they did not stand on President Biden speaking about uh, the need to invest in trauma supports in our schools uh, for for our babies or the need to lower the cost of prescription drugs and insulin uh, more specifically, or the the need for an assault weapons ban. And again, uh, the need for real uh, police reform and accountability. I had um, the distinct uh, honor to uh, spend a few moments with uh, Tyree Nichols' family earlier in the day. And as I watched them uh, as guests of the CBC uh, and um, the first lady uh, seated in the gallery, and I saw Tyree's mother leaning over and saying, stand up, stand up. Um, Because when President Biden was quoting her saying, some good must come from this, they initially remained seated. And in fact, uh, there was an exchange later in the day where one of our Republican colleagues had said to her in passing, I'm praying for you. And her response was, I don't need your prayers. I need your vote. Uh, Again, what we saw uh, from them at the State of the Union was more of the same and what we can expect for the next two years. And so as a Democrat, what I would say um, is that I hope the contrast could not be clearer or more sharp. Um, And I think it's, uh, you know, certainly our responsibility for the next two years to make the affirmative case for Democrats um, that we are the party that is pro-woman, pro-worker, pro-immigrant. And I could go on. I mean, just in these first three weeks that we've been here, they have got our congressional ethics office. They Um, sought to advance three anti-abortion bills in their rules package. Um, I chair the Abortion Rights and Access Task Force under the Pro-Choice Caucus. So I'm an original uh, co-leader of the Women's Health Protection Act with Congresswoman Judy Chu to codify Roe on the federal level and also of the EACH Act uh, with Congresswoman Lee and others to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which is racist and discriminatory. You know, and then, of course, the uh, removal of Representative uh, Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. And so they're operating from a place of political uh, vengeance and in the meantime, playing with people's lives. They are playing with people's lives, with the theater, with the stunts, with the gamesmanship, with the political vengeance. They are playing with people's lives while Democrats are seeking to do the work of changing and saving people's lives. Uh, And so that's that's what I remain squarely focused on. Like I said, policy is my love language. And even though for the next two years, we will be doing a great deal of harm mitigation, uh, I'm certainly not going to stop organizing, stop mobilizing, stop legislating, because we don't only do that when we're in cycle. I don't. I don't only do that when Dems are in the majority because we're here to stand uh, in the gap on issues of consequence. And on the issue of reform and accountability, I will be reintroducing my legislation with Senator Markey to end qualified immunity. Because of course we know uh, there can never be justice because justice would mean that uh, Tiana Jefferson and Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor and uh, Tyree Nichols and Amir Locke and Mike Brown and so many others uh, would still be here. But there must be accountability and qualified immunity is just an unjust doctrine that continues to be codified in our courts 
to allow uh, law enforcement to operate with cruelty, callous disregard, brutality, and violence of black and brown bodies uh, with impunity, without any consequences. So what is the deterrent if there are no consequences? Uh, and so we have got to end qualified immunity. And so I will be reintroducing that legislation. Uh, one of the things, Jamal, I want to point out, the power of representation, the fact that President Biden used the words reform and accountability in his State of the Union. You know, congressional intent is a very powerful thing, and I, I certainly seek to store that in my own way righteously every day. But presidential intent is a very powerful thing, and the State of the Union is that inflection point for presidential intent. The fact that he used those words, that was not by accident. It speaks to the power of representation because within days of Tyree Nichols' murder, the CBC demanded a meeting with the White House. Uh, and in that time, organized 15 surviving family families who had been robbed of their loved ones um, because of uh, police uh, violence and, and murder uh, to come to the State of the Union. And then we had a press conference. We then marched to the Library of Congress. We were all wearing our 1807 pins you know, to highlight the first reported uh, case of a black man being unjustly murdered by the police. And so all of those things work together. I just wanted to lift that up because a lot of people uh, sometimes don't know what the Congressional Black Caucus does or really do question what is the impact of representation. Well, it's, even though we are all fine, it's not for better looking photos. You know, it is for how that representation shows up in our policies, uh, in the advocacy, and indeed at the State of the Union. We are a powerful block within the halls of Congress, uh, 58 members strong, the biggest CBC in the history of Congress. And as Black Americans, uh, we are powerful movement builders and truth tellers, and also incredibly powerful at the ballot box. And so we have to leverage that power at every turn. And I just want folks to know that, you know, that was not a statement of benevolence or osmosis. That is the result of advocacy and leadership and representation. And so I want people to know when you speak up and if you can do that and be disciplined and with vigilance, it has an impact because more often than not, government does not lead, it responds. And that's why that pressure is so very important. It can be, and I can only imagine how you feel because you're in the work every day in every moment. But I often hear people say, oh, the Democrats aren't as good at messaging. They don't get their message out, this and that. My comeback to that is always, well, the Democrats don't have multiple networks that are dedicated to getting their message out, right? So the right, your colleagues across the aisle, they have Fox, they have OWN, they have Newsmax, they have, mo they have a ton of conservative outlets where that is the message. So I don't know if you can drown that out because they are pretty much on brand with everything they do and that there's no Democratic equivalent. Some people could say, oh, it's MSNBC, I guess. But MSNBC is not running nonstop Democratic messaging all the time the same way those other parties are. So with that being said, as you just mentioned, a lot of people don't know what the Congressional Black Caucus has done. They don't know about your amazing policy work. The fact that there is one party that is dedicated to, as you so eloquently stated, not just harm reduction, but also ushering progressive policies for all Americans. Given what this political dynamic is, what do you feel like is the Democrats' best way to better connect with people when we are in such an extreme place as a nation? 
Well, you know, I think our charge is to be responsive to the will of the people. And I think that's why the Republican majority in the 118th is so slim, because we did do that effectively. I mean, again, the reason why police reform and accountability were named, the reason why student debt was named, the reason why he said he will veto a ban on abortion um, is a testament to the power of progressive policies and the power of progressive organizing. You know, in states throughout the country, from Kansas uh, to Michigan, it was affirmed that abortion care is health care and health care is a fundamental right. And that if the Supreme Court is going to legislate from the bench and seek to overturn the will of the majority of the people, it's important, you know, that someone else is standing in the gap. And so you saw that in state houses and you heard that from the president. But Congress's job is not done in that vein. So we have got to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, my bill to codify Roe, which is twice past the House, um, but we needed to pass in the Senate, so we have to abolish the filibuster. Student debt, you know, this is an issue, uh, Jamel, that was initially a fringe issue that people said was marginal, would be regressive in impact. Myself and others worked vigilantly for two years to build that into a coalition of civil rights organizers and organizations. This was the number one issue for the NAACP because it is a racial justice issue. Black students borrow at higher rates, default at higher rates, are paying loans, the equivalency each month of mortgages, right? And so people said that this was an issue, uh, policy student debt cancellation would only benefit white graduate affluent uh, students. And so we worked for two years to build this into a large coalition of union families and workers and civil rights organizations and grassroots people and borrowers to make the case it was an economic, racial and gender justice issue. And we got executive action from the president. Now, there'll be a Supreme Court. Uh, those statements will begin on February 28th because the courts are questioning if the president has the authority, which he does. Congress gave it to him through the Higher Education Act. And so my point is just that I'm not cynical. I'm not apathetic. I might get weary sometimes, but I'm not I'm not cynical. I'm not apathetic because I don't have the luxury and because I'm here to do the work of justice. And history has proven to us that the algorithm of justice shows, as Coretta Scott King said, that, you know, freedom and justice are earned in every generation. So we don't have these things in perpetuity. You know, gains are not guaranteed. That's why we have to fight like hell to preserve the gains that have been made and then to build upon those. So we've got two years to make the affirmative case for Democrats. And I think we do that by keeping our word. We have to make sure the student debt cancellation happens. In the midterms, the 18 to 35 voting demographic outpaced 65 plus. And many of those uh, voters were motivated um, by what was happening around the bans on our bodies, by the prospect of student debt uh, cancellation. I'm of the, the feeling, and it's been proven time again, that Democrats win when we don't play small. When we play small and we argue in the Republican frame and allow them to define who we are, that is when we lose. When we go big, because we need to advance policies that go as big, as broad, as deep as the hurt is. And so that's what we need to do for the next two years. We got to make sure we're, I don't, you know what, Jamal, I don't want people to know what the Democrats are doing or what the CBC is doing or the Congressional Progressive Caucus or what Ayanna Presley is doing because they saw a press release or because they saw an Insta Live. That's nice enhancement. I want them to know because they feel it. 
they feel the impact of a child, a permanent child tax credit in their life and an extra $500 a month. They feel the impact of money saved because student debt was canceled and that eliminated a bill for them. They feel the impact of our investments in HBCUs, in universal pre-K, in a childcare system that's high quality and accessible and affordable to all, but also a workforce has been taken care of. You know, to name a few, the next two years, we have to make the affirmative case for Democrats. And I think we do that by advancing legislation that is responsive to the needs of the people, that centers them, their humanity and their dignity, and that we make good on our promises. And we don't play small. My girl, Brittany, my sister cousin, Brittany Pagnett Cunningham, you know, once talked about Democrats sometimes operating with scared power. And I agree with that. You know, what is the point of having power um, if you don't use it? Uh, what's the point of being in the majority? It's just a talking point. You know, we have the Senate, we have the White House, we have executive authority, and I'll continue to um, push the administration to leverage uh, the tool of executive power for the next two years as well. I'm sure you hear this commonly from your constituents and from Democrats at large is that a lot of people get a little disillusioned because they feel like even when the Republicans aren't in control, it feels like they're in control because they're willing to literally sink to whatever level is necessary to get their agenda across. A uh, lot more I want to ask you about. We definitely have to have a hair conversation for sure, because I know that a lot of people would so benefit from hearing your story. But we're just going to take a very quick break okay. and we will be back with more with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. On last week's episode, I talked about how my husband basically rescued me from having a permanent negative perception of Valentine's Day because our celebrations have been so wonderful, so thoughtful, and I just have lived for all of them. But I got a story to tell about how I did my husband dirty on Valentine's Day last week. That's right. I was the guilty one. So my husband was going to be away on business during the week of Valentine's Day. But he was only going to be about an hour and a half away from our house. So we made the plan that I would drive up to see him, spend the night with him in his hotel and then come back home the next day because I had to go to Philadelphia for a speaking engagement. I had everything planned out. Went to Victoria's Secret, got me some little nice sexy lingerie, got a candle, some nice scented lotion, because when the time came, I wanted to set a particular mood. I also got him some heart-shaped Reese's peanut butter cups because I know how much he loves them. I also got him these motivational cards that have these different motivational sayings on them because he's really into motivational speeches and phrases. And I got him a Versace toiletry bag because it came with a bunch of different Versace travel items because I know he likes to wear a nice cologne, but it's hard to get them in travel sizes. And of course, I got him a card. And that's where this story goes left. Now, we had a wonderful Valentine's Day. He took me to a really nice restaurant. We had a beautiful view, good food, good wine, great conversation. I set the mood that I needed to set later on in the hotel room. And shout out to my man, Questlove, because he sent me a Valentine's Day playlist that is basically designed to get somebody pregnant. A few days after Valentine's Day, we're home and my very observant husband notices something. He pulls out the Valentine's Day card I got him last year because he was going to put this year's card up 
in his place, which is on his nightstand. And that's when he noticed. (sighs) I got him the same damn card that I got him last year. Players mess up, okay? In my defense, at least I didn't write the same thing I wrote him last year. And while I didn't realize I got him the same card, the reasons I got the card were the same. All I saw was two black people loving on each other in complete bliss. And I was so struck by the image, I bought it again. My husband roasted me for days, but I got to thinking about it. And I think I'm going to now make this a tradition. I'm going to buy him the same damn car every Valentine's Day. I mean, it's a win-win for both of us. It's a cute inside joke. And I don't have to think too much about what car to buy. Last question. Anybody got a hookup at Mahogany gift cards? Because I'd like to buy in bulk. And now back to more with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Before we have that conversation about here, uh, Congresswoman, one thing that I think everybody has noticed, um, and I'm sure you have too, being in this work, is that in 2020, there was a lot of conversation about racial reconciliation and, oh, we're at a different place in this country and uh, healing. And we're, I had white folks I hadn't heard of in forever calling me talking about some, how can I be a better ally? And I was like, oh, oh, okay, this is new. I hope you that your advice is billable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I should have done that. Definitely. That's how you can start. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're correct. You can start by writing me a check. How about that? Um, but there was a, you know, there was a lot of, at least in the content space, it was certainly some people that benefited from the white guilt checks, as I call them. But beyond all that, we were at a place in the conversation, unfortunately, because of George Floyd and what happened to him. You fast forward, we're, you know, now here in 2023, and it feels like, like a regression has happened. We got, you know, Ron DeSantis going full fascist in Florida book banning, all this, like all these things are happening. What would you attribute this wave back? Or even though history, I guess, has kind of told us this is what happens. Where is this wave coming from? And why does it even feel stronger than the wave that we were trying to take advantage of in 2020 and go in the other direction? You know, what can we do to stop this wave, I guess, too? Let me start here. Many years ago, I was a fellow through the Aspen Institute through a program called the Rodell Fellowship. You know, I remember being in class and asking the professor, you know, why are people so averse to change? And the professor said, "Um, Ayana, they're not averse to change. They're averse to loss. And so every time uh, someone has engaged me in a way that is especially hateful, venomous or vitriolic in person or online, um, I ask myself, what do they think they are losing? To me, that is what is resulted in this policy violence, this rhetoric, and this backlash, um, that is the, the consequence of our growing, of the growing power, I think, of, of, of Black folk and people of color. We're so in the struggle that sometimes we don't even take a fair audit of our victories, but pay attention to what's happening around, around the country, right? You know, more uh, workers unionizing, um, uh, the victories even in red states of abortion access uh, on, on the ballot. The fact that, again, myself, uh, Black folks and many in the progressive movement were able to see an action on student debt, um, that we have an unprecedented uh, representation of Black mayors representing our four biggest cities. 
an unprecedented number of Black women elected to Congress in this last midterm elections. And I could go on. There have been many uh, historic firsts and in some instances where we are gaining more critical mass. Uh, And so I think this is a backlash to that. It's, um, you know, white supremacy, fear of white erasure. You see that showing up in in every level of government, whether it's our school committees, um, our city halls or our state houses. And if you look at something like reproductive rights and abortion justice, the same states that have the triggered law states that deny this access are the same states with the most draconian LGBTQ laws, you know, are the same states that have been uh, the most active in anti-Black sentiment in stopping the, the teaching of, of Black history. So there are these concentric circles of legislated marginalization, oppression and violence. And it is unrelenting and, and it is coordinated. And I have to say, again, it's legislated. As I, I keep saying policy is my love language. And that's not just a T-shirt slogan, though. I do sell a T-shirt if you want to buy it. The point is that we know what it is to live in the aftermath or in the present of legislated hurt and harm. And now we have to legislate equity, legislate healing, legislate uh, justice. But this coordinated policy violence, I believe, is backlash to a growing mobilization of the most marginalized. We are increasingly more powerful. There are more of us and we are more powerful and we are having these victories. Pivoting a little bit, as I teased before, I wanted to have a hair conversation with you because I thought it was just so courageous and bold uh, when you decided to present yourself as bald. You suffer from alopecia, which is probably something that I think many people had not heard of, maybe before your struggle, maybe more learned of it be when Jada Pinkett Smith disclosed she also suffers from it. So for you, explain a little bit of your, your journey. What was it like living with this and what gave you the courage to decide I'm going to be me and present myself to the world this way? Well, the first thing is I think that a lot of people think that I have been living with this for a long time, and that's not true. In a five-week period, I lost all the hair on my head, my face, and my body. So I have alopecia totalis. I don't shave my head. The hair came out clean just like that. So in a five-week period, I was grappling with this and carrying the secrecy and the shame of it and doing everything possible to artfully cover up what was growing uh, baldness Um, under my Senegalese twist. It was nothing short of devastating. I went completely bald the eve of the first impeachment vote. Uh, Donald Trump, the former occupant of the White House, will forever be the twice impeached president. But his first impeachment on the eve of that first impeachment vote, my mother's heavenly birthday, December 17th, was when I went completely bald. And I called Angela Rye, who connected me with a stylist friend of hers uh, named Jamal. At five o'clock in the morning, I went there and he custom fit me uh, with a wig and I went to the house floor and I had even contemplated because, you know, I was just so happy to be free from trying to artfully cover this all up. I couldn't believe Jamal that I didn't cry. You know, I think that was grace. Um, I think that was my mom showing up. I'm an only child. So she was uh, showing up in that moment spiritually. I took a shower and I had never felt water hit my head. To get into a shower without putting on a scarf and a shower cap, you know, I'd never known that in my life. And so I actually felt a great peace about it and had contemplated just going to the house floor bald. And my staff felt, and I 
eventually conceded as well, that because I'm black and a woman and because of who I am, that they would think I was making a political statement on this impeachment vote day if I did that. And the House has rules. The only person that has the exception of wearing a head covering, and this happened once she was elected, is Representative Ilhan Omar. So you cannot wear hats on the House floor. You cannot wear any sort of head covering. And so I had really no choice but to get a wig very quickly. And the second I had delivered my statement on the floor as to why I was voting to impeach Donald Trump, I ran to the bathroom. I cried. Uh, That was the first time I cried. And it was because I felt, I knew right then that I was not going to continue to wear a wig. I just felt like there's so much armor, so much we already put on as Black women to go into the world. And look, in my life, I had worn Sade ponytails and Rihanna wigs and, you know, every sort of thing, because that's Black girl magic and, you know, Black woman beauty, and we get to flex however we want. But this was something not of my choosing. It was a transformation not of my choosing. And so I wanted to get that agency back. And so that was when we reached out um, and I made the decision that I, I would not be wearing a wig. Now alopecia is my superpower. You know, I'm so grateful for the alopecia community that has embraced me. And I'm very proud to provide them with this representation uh, in the halls of Congress every day. Yeah, you you helped a lot of people. And certainly if people look at the statistics, it is something that, as everything else, disproportionately impacts Black women. Okay, before I get you out of here, Congressman Presley, there's a little game that I like to play with all my guests. Yeah. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this. You listen to the podcast so you know what this is. I give you two choices and you can pick one. And this is where all the controversy happens. This is where I hope the headline comes is in this. Okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, a Boston lobster roll or Chicago deep dish pizza. You're getting me in trouble. Yes, that was the point. <laughs> I have to say Chicago deep dish, okay. <laughs> all right, see, oh, okay, you, you could go back to Chicago now. It's all right. <laughs> I know you mentioned your wigs. I know you named some of your wigs. So the Flotus wig or the Tracy Ellis Ross wig? Oh, I can't choose. I love them both. It depends on my mood. Okay, you know what? I'm going to give it up to Tracy on this one because I love me some Tracy Ellis Ross. And shout out to Hair Tales, just nominated for NAACP Image Award, by the way. So, All right, Tracy Ellis Ross it is. And finally, as you know, these Beyonce tickets have gone on sale. Everybody and their mama's trying to get one and their cousins too. You're given two tickets to Beyonce, but you can only take either Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Babert or Bobert, whatever. She didn't deserve me to pronounce her name. Who are you taking? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> what are you talking about here? Like, Neither. The answer is I'm sitting at home. I'll see you later, Beyonce. What's the third? I'm not going. No, there is no third. Is it a mandate that I have to bring something? <laughs> it's a mandate per the question that you have to bring somebody. <laughs> goodness. Okay. You know, maybe just, okay, hold up. Because she's actually, Marjorie Taylor Greene is my neighbor. She's across the hall from me. To be neighborly. Wow. I love this headline. I guess I would invite her. So I just had my birthday on Friday. I'm an Aquarius. You know, and so in the spirit of Aquarian energy and being neighborly, I guess I would ask her. as a basic courtesy right there. There's the headline. Representative Presley and Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to see Beyonce. There you go. (laughs) 
But, I, you know, I, I had, quickly, I had Representative Cori Bush on the podcast, too. And I asked her, you know, we see what these people do in front of the cameras. Like, what are they behaving like in the hallway? Like, if y'all go into the water cooler, is everything just supposed to be cool? Because they say such nasty things. And I just wonder how they're just walking around in the office regularly. Do you want to ask me that question again about when did you become unbothered? Yeah, when did you become unbothered? Part two. <laughs> when they passed me in the hallway. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, I'm, you know. You're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, because I, you know. I'm good. I'm just taking up all the space with this melanated crown, you know, and these resistance hoops just taking up all the space. Here to do the work for the people. You know, I know we're talking about Black History Month. Listen, Black History Matters, so does Black Future. Mm. That's what I'm focused on. I hear you. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know you have a very busy schedule. And more importantly, the reasons I love having conversations with people like you and particularly other activists is that it does give me a great deal of hope. Because sometimes with all these headlines from day after day about how this country is on fire, you're just like... I I don't even know. Asteroid, where are you? Like sometimes I, you just, you get a little disillusioned and a little disheartened. And I'm certainly people listening to this podcast that heard about the policy work that you're doing. Certainly ending qualified immunity is such a huge step. And I hope to see that in my lifetime. So yeah, I just appreciate your work and you're continuing to focus on fighting for the people. Got it. And thank you so much for telling our stories and giving us hope too. I appreciate that. Uh, Congresswoman Presley is getting out of here. Sorry, Congresswoman. This is the part where I cuss. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Apparently, the theme for today's podcast is fake outrage because fuck it, I'm bothered about the fake outrage police coming for Don Lemon. In the interest of full transparency, Don Lemon has been a guest on this podcast and he's someone I do consider to be a friend. He's one of the best broadcasters in television news. So if you want to accuse me of being biased in what I'm about to say, that's fair. But I believe I have a point. Don sparked a lot of outrage recently because some of the comments he made about women and when we are past our prime, as in the prime of our lives. For full context, his comments were made in response to something presidential candidate Nikki Haley said when she shared her opinion that a lot of the politicians, her male peers who are in office, are currently past their prime. Here is what Don said. I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What are you that's talking about? That's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll if you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. Oh, I got another I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that, you know, politicians aren't in their prime. You need to qualify. Are you talking about prime for like child bearing or are you talking about prime for being president? The facts are Google it. Everybody at home. When is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime and they need to be in their prime when they serve because she wouldn't be in her prime, according to Google, Google or whatever it is. 
So explain this to me like I'm a five year old and feel free to listen again in case you didn't get it right away. How is Don Lemon making sexist remarks when he says very clearly multiple times that he doesn't believe in this idea that women are in their primes at a certain age, but that society in general, these are his words, they have a time period that they've established for when women are in their prime. He was pointing out the hypocrisy of Nikki Haley saying her male peers were past their prime when that's a common narrative used to denigrate women and diminish their ability to contribute. Because presumably she would be upset if one of her male colleagues said what she said about them and they instead said it about her. That's so simple to me that even a five-year-old could get that. But often it's not the what, it's the who. In this case, the who is an unapologetic black gay man who has been a bold and daring voice on black issues. The who is also Nikki Haley, a woman of color, at least when it's convenient, who is obviously vying for such a powerful position in our government, a conservative star. So naturally, there were a long list of conservative voices pretending to be outraged because it gave them something they absolutely love, the opportunity to stick it to a black voice that holds them accountable for their nonsense. And there is nothing more that conservatives also love than being able to draw a false equivalency. The party that is actively stripping away a woman's autonomy over her body, the party who refuses to support maternal health care, Head Start, equal pay, all the things that truly would help protect women is suddenly fake caring about how women are discussed in the media. Ain't that a bitch? Now, Don apologized publicly and to his staff, record label and crew. And it rubbed me wrong because this doesn't feel like someone being held accountable. This feels very much like putting a prominent black voice in their place to appease the wrong white folks. Now, I have seen this happen so many times before, and it's even happened to me. Most recently, it happened to my good friend, Tiffany Cross, whose popular weekend show was abruptly canceled by MSNBC because she dared to defend herself on air against Tucker Carlson's persistent and consistent personal attacks on her. If you're standing with Tucker Carlson, who every night hosts the white supremacist power hour over a black woman who is one of the most important voices in media, you are firmly, boldly, ignorantly on the wrong side of history. Now, I don't know if you notice by the programming, but there has been a significant philosophical shift at CNN. They're doing that tired dance of trying to be more moderate and conservative to try to woo the type of people who watch Fox News. And now they're using Don Lemon to send a bat signal to those people that no need to worry. They'll keep their outspoken blacks in check. I'm constantly frustrated by some of these corporate media outlets who want black faces, but they don't want black voices, at least not the kind of voices that will challenge the white power structure hierarchies and hold some white folks accountable they want to support black talent when it's convenient for them and you can set your watch to the moment that they decide to pull support as soon as black talent runs in opposition of the people they most want to impress or stay in collaboration with everybody wants to be an ally until it's time to be an ally stay unbothered to break you off with the fraud Fuck it, I'm Bob
bothered Hit you with the spice that I offer Fuck it, I'm bothered uh. My word, how I live You it. don't wanna miss it I was born to get it Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.